You're listening to TIP. That's a great question. That's by far the hardest part <laughs> because if you live in a city like Boston and you know every the southeast United States, there's all this population migration, right? And you're like, there's 20 cities that all look great that you can start looking at. It's it's actually really hard to narrow down, and that was a struggle that I had. On today's show, Axel Ragnarsson returns for the third time. This time, we talk about long-distance investing, how to do market research and find good markets to invest in, what criteria to use when looking for certain types of properties, how to structure real estate partnerships, and much more. I know this is an episode you guys are going to want to bookmark or save to be able to go back and listen to time and time again. It's packed with a ton of great information. Before we get into this episode, I want to share some exciting news and an opportunity we have available for you guys. We're actually looking for a new podcast host. Specifically, I'm looking for someone who wants to become a podcast host full-time with TIP. You'd be working with me directly and hosting the Millennial Investing Podcast. It is a full-time role, but you're able to make your own hours, work whenever you want from wherever you want. If you're interested in applying, please send your resume via email to robert at theinvestorspodcast.com or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram for more information. Be sure to follow Axel on social media and across the internet at Multifamily Wealth. And you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at TheRobertLeonard. All right. Now, without further delay, let's get into this masterclass on long-distance investing and real estate partnerships with Axel Ragnarsson. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Axel Ragnarsson. Axel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Robert. Pumped to get into it again. You are one of the very few guests that has been on the show multiple times. And actually, just you, Neil Bawa, and one other guest have been on the podcast three times out of nearly 200 guests. But for those who didn't hear our previous two episodes together, which were episodes 6 and 53, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into real estate. Sure. So I'll try and give you the spark notes here. So basically, late high school, early college, I was the definition of that kid that was doing anything to make a buck outside of getting a job. So (laughs) I was out there buying and selling stuff online and golf clubs, Xboxes, whatever. And essentially what happened was I started flipping cars and actually started making some good money doing that. And that was kind of a side business I ran in early college. And then sophomore, junior year, I was trying to figure out, is there anything bigger, more expensive that I can buy and sell to go out there and make more money? You know, What's kind of like the next step with this? So I started learning about flipping houses. That was kind of my natural, I guess, next step from flipping cars was that. So I did the whole thing where I was watching HGTV and learning about it online. And as I was learning about flipping houses, I learned about rental property and just passive income and multifamily property and just the idea of buying a building and your tenants pay your rent and they give you passive income. And that sounded like a really good deal to me in terms of you know you buy a property once or you do the work once and you get kind of paid in perpetuity. So started shifting my strategy to figuring out how I could build a portfolio of rental properties rather than flip houses. And basically, 
figured out that I needed to find some private lenders because I didn't have the money and I didn't have a good W-2 job or good tax returns to go out there and get lending. So went out and found a couple of private lenders that I could work with. And then I started looking for deals. And when I was in college, I did a three-unit deal that I found on Craigslist, financed with private money, brought very little of my own cash to that one and kind of got the bug from there. So that led to doing a few more of those over the next couple of years before I graduated. And then I basically went full-time after that, started doing a few deals a year, growing a portfolio. And all of this was being done in Manchester, New Hampshire, small market in New Hampshire that folks that aren't even from New England probably have never heard of, but market up in New Hampshire. And then I moved down to Boston a couple of years after I graduated college and was doing deals up there, but also wanted to start doing deals out of state and wanted to start doing some larger deals. So Basically, the evolution of the business was built a portfolio up in Manchester that kind of replaced my income and gave me the freedom to start thinking about what else I wanted to do in real estate. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to start working with investors and wanted to start bringing in partners so that I could scale a little bit more quickly. And that's culminated in doing some slightly larger deals down in a market in Florida called Lakeland, Florida. And we've been down there for about six months there doing deals, partnering on a big deal in Houston, Texas as well with another successful investor. And at this point in the business, just looking to scale and do larger deals, work with investors and help other people get into real estate. So hopefully that's a good enough explanation. Try to keep it quick. All of that long distance investing piece is all new from the last time we talked. So the first two episodes that we had chatted, you hadn't done any long distance investing. And it was funny because I'm from the Manchester area like you and I was only long distance and you were only in Manchester and no long distance. So I was excited to hear that you decided to go long distance. And so I want to dive into that and see how things are going. To start out, what made you decide to go long distance? We had chatted about it a few times and you didn't seem like ready and you were happy with the market you were in. And then I saw you took the leap. So what was the turning point that made you ready to give long distance investing a shot? Sure. So I think it was two main reasons. One was I wanted to do bigger deals, right? Historically, the deals I did up in Manchester, New Hampshire were three to 10 to 15 unit deals. There was a lot of smaller multifamily. And I wanted to get into larger multifamily. And for me, that was 25, 30 plus unit properties. So I ran a data list in Manchester. I mean, I ran a data list in New Hampshire just as a state of 30 plus unit properties, you know, a couple more filtering criteria to that. But the list just wasn't big enough to go out there and hunt for deals and to actually try and find those deals. I would have toured through that list in a week and then I would have been back to square one trying to find them. So the reality is there's just the actual pure inventory just wasn't there to to try and do those deals alone. You know, I wouldn't have stayed busy trying to do that in New Hampshire just as a state. So for me, it was one of the driving reasons was I want to do larger deals. I need to look in a few markets to stay busy looking for those deals just in general. So that was the first thing was that. Manchester and then New Hampshire just as a state was almost too small of a market to do that. So the other piece was Manchester specifically as a market in the last year has gained a ton of out-of-state interest from out-of-state buyers. A lot of folks who are living in Boston, a lot of folks living in New York, investing around those areas. There's absolutely no opportunity for cash flow if you're within 30 minutes of Boston or you're investing within 30 minutes of Boston, a traditional kind of long-term lease strategy. Same thing with like in New York. I had some people coming up from Connecticut. And it just Manchester blew up as a market is really what it was. So there's a ton of interest. You know, I've sold probably six properties in the last year. They've all been to out-of-state buyers and they're just paying the most. And in my opinion, the 
average price per unit, you know, the average sales price for a lot of the multifamilies are starting to stray a little bit from the fundamental drivers of that market. I like Manchester. There is some population growth. There is income growth, all that fun stuff. New Hampshire is the only state in New England with growing population. But for me, I was like, you know what? I think I need to diversify a little bit. I don't want all my eggs in this one small city, right? In this one basket. So that led me down to Florida, which has a lot of those awesome fundamental indicators, right? I mean, tons of population growth, tons of income growth, job growth, rent growth. It's relatively landlord-friendly. All of those reasons were like, you know, let's just pick Florida and pick a couple markets here and we'll start trying to do deals. So I think if, you know, in summary, it was my local market was getting pretty expensive, especially compared to the rent that we were getting per unit. And I didn't want to just all my eggs in that one basket. And it just was too small of a market to stay busy looking for these larger deals. Yeah. That dynamic of people from out of market coming into new markets and paying a higher price is interesting. You talked about it from state to another state, which is kind of what you and I do as investors. But we also see this even in some like major cities. People wonder how people can invest in like Los Angeles, let's say. And that's because people will come from China and Canada and Australia and like other countries and come and invest here. And people who are local to that market know that they wouldn't pay those rates because they can do better elsewhere. But these people from other countries come there and they're like, well, this is way better than what I get in my country, in my home market. So we'll still pay it. And so it's like that same dynamic, but on a little bit smaller scale for Manchester. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Boston, right? I live in Boston. I don't actively invest in Boston, but I'm familiar with the dynamics of Boston, right? Because I know a lot of folks that invest down here. Previously, whether it's out of country money, like you're mentioning, whether it's Europe, China, some of these other countries where you have wealthy folks that just like the security of US real estate, or even just larger players, you know, groups, whether it's private equity funds or family offices or extremely well capitalized large investors, they've been trickling down in terms of the size of deals they'll do. They're starting to do smaller and smaller deals. So it's not uncommon that you have a family office buying a five unit deal, <laughs> like within 10 minutes of Boston proper. So it's, not only are you competing with out-of-country money, you're competing with very well-capitalized firms that have a lower return requirement than just a lot of the average investors. You know, They're okay earning 5% cash-on-cash return, for example, whereas investors like you or I or, or folks that are trying to aggressively build a portfolio or want to replace their income, they're going to need more than that. right? So there's all these dynamics that come into play, but oftentimes that drives people up to a smaller market like Manchester where there's still opportunity for cash flow. It's, there's less competition. There's less sophisticated buyers doing deals up there. And that's just kind of the evolution of, of the real estate market, I guess. So I found myself on the uptake of that, right? In properties that I'd paid 80 grand a door for a year ago, we're now selling for 110 a door. And you just have to look at the numbers and say, at some point, it gets irresponsible for me to not take some of my chips off the table here and to not just think about looking elsewhere because it just felt like it was getting a little too out of the ordinary. And then I guess that's really what just drove that higher level conceptual, let's go take this somewhere else. Once you decided that you were going to go somewhere else to invest, how did you find which markets you were going to invest in? And I don't mean what were you looking for in those cities. We'll talk about that in just a second. But actually, like tactically speaking, how did you find the cities? Which programs did you use? Platforms? Software? Did you use to do your research to even find these markets? That's a great question. That's by far the hardest part. <laughs> because if you live in a city like Boston and you know every the Southeast United States, there's all this population migration, right? And you're like, there's 20 cities that all look great that you can start looking at. It's, it's actually really hard to narrow down. And that was a struggle that I had was, let's look in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. Let's go look in 
Charlotte, North Carolina. Let's go look in South Carolina. Let's go look in Georgia. Let's go look in Huntsville, Alabama. There's all these great markets, but you'll just go insane trying to analyze all of them. So for me, I almost started the other way. And I'll kind of get back to a lot of the specifics of your question. But for me, I was like, what's easy for me to travel to? Where would I kind of enjoy traveling to? And where can I actually just compete on a fundamental level? I can't compete in a Nashville, Tennessee. I can't compete in a like a Charlotte, North Carolina. I mean, I can, but it's going to take me a while to find deals there because they're very mature markets. There's a ton of local competition and national competition. So for me, I was like, where can I actually go and compete? What's easy for me to travel to when I need to? And we'll make sure that it checks all those other boxes, that it has the growth we're looking for, that it has all of those metrics we're seeking. So for me, Tampa, Florida was just a market at the time when I started looking that hadn't really matured to the level that it has like today. But I started looking at Tampa and I said, you know, what's within 45 minutes of Tampa that is likely going to be a growing market? It's going to benefit from all the winds or the tailwinds of a market, all the demographics of a market like Tampa. So that led me to Lakeland, Florida, which is just 45 minutes from Tampa. It's actually 40 minutes from Orlando as well, situated right between the two. And then I said, you know, I think that I could compete in a market like that. It's not a major city. There's probably local interest, maybe some regional interest, but not national interest. So then I backed into, does it check all the boxes that I'm looking for? Lakeland has unbelievable population growth. A lot of people migrating out of Tampa and out of Orlando into Lakeland just because the cost of living in those two cities is increasing. It's situated right along Interstate 4. It's an unbelievable logistical hub for a lot of major companies. Amazon, UPS, Publix Grocery Store, which is obviously a major grocery store chain throughout Florida and the Southeast. They have a headquarters there and a distribution facility there. So there was all these great reasons to like it, right? So I had the job, the income, the population growth, which is really what we care about. And then obviously rent growth as a byproduct of all that. And it was also just a size where I knew that I could come in and compete. I believe the population of Lakeland is just over 100K. It's actually very similar to Manchester. And that was why I liked it. It was a very clean parallel to my local market in terms of the size, the price per units, the rents. I mean, it was all very similar. And I was like, you know what? I can go in there and actually, you know, I'm not going to compete with some guy from California who's looking to do deals in Lakeland. I think that it's a little bit more off the beaten path in terms of the interest level for a market like that, but it is still very close to large major cities in Florida. And it's just two hour, 45 minute flight. It's a cheap flight. It's easy to get there. If I need to go there, I can do so easily. If I want to go down there and network with brokers and agents, it's direct, simple to do so. I don't know if that answers your question. I can talk about some more of the specifics, but I think that for me, I needed to almost back into the market by way of what's easy for me to get to, what is similar to the markets that I'm already operating in, and just where can I actually compete? Where might I develop a competitive advantage rather than just going off there, some of these huge ones with a ton of interest? What did you use to even find Lakeland? Like, did you use a website? Like, what platform or how did you even come across Lakeland? Because, I mean, like you said, there's so many different markets. So, I mean, it's hard to know how to even get there. So one of the things that I did just tactically was I pulled a list of all the cities in Florida that had 80,000 to 200,000 people. And I said, you know what? The major cities obviously have a higher population than that. That's similar to what I know. I feel like I can compete in a market that has that kind of population and probably that level of interest. So I just made a list of 80, 200K. What cities? And there was maybe 15, 20 kind of cities or sub-markets of larger cities on that list. And I just pulled just a Google search. You can pull that from a number of websites. And then I started using city-data.com to analyze a lot of the metrics within those cities. Like what's been the population growth the last 10 years? What's been the rent growth the last 10 years? And I basically just used an Excel sheet and charted out all those metrics. And the thing is, I didn't just go to the one with just the best on all of them, right? Because that's logically what I feel like a lot of folks were going to be doing who are coming from out of state. So for me, I basically did one step further and obviously looked them all up on a map, figured out 
direct flight to Tampa and Orlando, very easy, simple to get to. And then I just started mapping out the proximity of a lot of these, right? I, Lakeland's a little bit more inland in terms of the price per unit. It's not a coastal city like a Sarasota, for example, where you're going to be paying very high price per door to get into a market like that. So for me, I was like, I got to find some inland cities, some cities that are 65 to 85 grand a door so that I can actually go in there, find some cash flow. I didn't want the 150,000 population heading down the East Coast where it's very high income, A-class property. That just wasn't going to be a fit for me. So I started to weed a lot of those out. And you get down to a few, right? You know, you get down to like a Gainesville, Florida, an Ocala, Florida, a Lakeland, Florida, just kind of heading down the central part of Florida. And I look at Lakeland, it's situated right between Tampa and Orlando. I said, that's an unbelievable location. Did some research. I knew a couple of guys that were doing deals down in Tampa and they were like, we love Lakeland. We'd love to grow a rental portfolio in Lakeland. And through all that information gathering, I was like, all right, let me just actually focus on this. And then I tried my best to cut out the rest of the noise and, and to stop thinking about other markets to go all in on that one. You mentioned that you're looking for population growth, rental price growth, and income growth. What are the benchmarks there? What is good for population growth? What's bad? And for the other metrics as well? Yeah, I think that's a good question, right? I think you get a lot of different answers from different people, right? I mean, I think for someone from Boston, they see like 3% income growth and 3% population growth. They're like, that's good. That's better than here. <laughs> you know, or somebody from San Francisco is take less than that, or the less than that is good to them, right? Just in terms of the comparison of the two. So for me, I was like, we're growing by 3% annually. That's a really good figure. Tampa as a market's growing at four or 5% right now. Orlando is similar. You get Austin, Texas at 9%. It's up there, right? So I think it's all relative. But for me, I didn't need to see a huge population growth because that wasn't going to be critical to what I was trying to do. So for me, I almost wanted more of a sleepy market where there's not growth, but something that was a little bit more kind of in the meaty part of the curve because I didn't want to be competing with so many folks who found that market because of all these great metrics. So to answer your question directly, I mean, I, I think 3% kind of across all those figures is a pretty good number. And it's really the big three, population, job, and income, right? And then all the rest of it gets figured out in terms of rent growth and in terms of the vacancy rate staying low and all that stuff. So Lakeland hits those. It's right around those figures. Some of these bigger markets are going to beat it. A market like Manchester, New Hampshire, right? Maybe you're at one and a half, two 2% population growth. So it's a little bit below that benchmark, but I still like Manchester. So I think it's all pretty relative, but I think that's a good place to start in terms of if you're just trying to create like a baseline. Was the availability of real estate and construction professionals, such as property managers, electricians, plumbers, et cetera, a consideration when you were looking for markets? Or were you not too worried about that since you have experience as a property manager? I mean, I think that's really important, right? I mean, you can go and look up, and I think you can take what I'm saying to the extreme, right? Where you can go find a market in Arkansas with 40,000 people, and maybe it's a good market and you can really compete there because you're just competing with the people that live there. But like maybe there's just two property managers and maybe they don't do a great job and you go through both and you're like, what do I do now? And that's the danger of going out of state. So for me, I found that 100K as a population for a city is really kind of like the benchmark for when you got enough quality professionals to kind of choose from, whether it's property managers, contractors, agents, lenders, whoever. So, I mean, that was big for me. And I really wanted to make sure I had a management company lined up or some kind of boots on the ground partner that I could partner in a deal with who had those connections and was confident in those connections to work with. So that's what I did. I spoke with a lot of agents, spoke with a few management companies that maybe they were based in Tampa, but they managed out in Lakeland since it was just 40 minutes away. Spoke with a couple of Lakeland specific property management companies. There was more than enough to choose from, especially when you factor in its proximity to 
Orlando and Tampa. But that's a critical piece, right? Especially if you're planning to buy and hold, you need a good property manager. And it just if you don't have one you're confident with, don't even bother looking for deals there. It's just not worth your time because that's the most critical person in your team. <laughs> like if you're going to get one thing right, you got to get your management company right. So we definitely did that research before we started heavily pursuing deals down there. Which type of properties are you looking for down there? What are your criteria? So we want to do multifamily. We have a pretty wide criteria at the moment. We're looking to do anything from 16 to over 100 units. Anything that's 16 to 40 units, we can put together ourselves, maybe with a partner or two. And that'll be something that we have a larger equity portion and that we kind of control. Anything that's 40, 50 plus units, we're going to actually bring in a, a number of investors and put that deal together. So we have a pretty wide criteria in that respect, but mid-size to large multifamily is really what we're looking for. And I think our sweet spot right now in terms of where we can compete and find deals is the 16 to 20 to 80 unit deals because we're not competing with larger national buyers at that level. Once you get to 100 plus, there's significantly more buyers pursuing those because you can have on-site management at the property. There's more scale. It's worth it for a large firm based in Boston and New York or wherever to go out and actually do that deal, right? Because now they're actually deploying enough capital for it to be worth them to do that. So we found that we can compete pretty well in that middling area where it's a little bit too big for the local buyers, but it's a little bit too small for the big out-of-state buyers. And you know, we've done a 16 unit down there, a 28 unit down there. We're looking at a 44 right now. Those are the types of deals that I think we're going to be doing in the short term, but we would certainly look at the larger ones if somebody brought it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. How important is it for newer investors to have a set of defined criteria for properties before they start searching for their first or even their next property? I mean, it's so critical. And I think it's really, really important to understand what you can do. When I was initially going out of state, I was looking at small deals. I was like, I just need to do something to get the reps in to just go through the motions to do it. right? And that was happened to be a 16 unit, which was a small enough deal for where I was at in my career to where I felt comfortable doing something like that. But I think that it's going to be really hard to get people to send you deals or to get people to think about you when you're out there looking for deals that they don't know exactly what you're looking for. When I started talking to brokers, I was like, I want to do the deals that maybe are a little bit too big for maybe your local buyer list, but too small for some of the more larger players you're working with. I want to be kind of the guy that can come in and pick up that slack. So if you have a 16 to a 40 unit deal that's built in the 70s or 80s around this kind of price per door, 65 to 75 a door that's got a little, you know, the rents are below market and maybe the ownership group has kind of let it run without paying too much attention the last couple of years and they're leaving meat on the table. Those are the types of deals I'm looking for, you know. So age, construction style, kind of the price per door, kind of the ownership story, obviously the unit range, because you want somebody, and this is literally what happened. We closed a 16 unit deal. I called up a broker to tell him that we closed a deal that I had a very rough relationship with. I think we spoke maybe one time. And I say, hey, we did this 16 unit deal. If you see any more that are kind of similar, 70s, 80s built, below market rents, blah, blah, blah. And I just further established my criteria with them. I said, you know, make sure you send them to me. And literally the next week, he's like, I just found a 28 unit that has all these things you just mentioned. And I think it would be like a perfect fit for you and your guys. And I was like, that's the exact definition of why you get really granular with your criteria. That also just helps you focus too. The worst thing you can do is go out there and be looking for multiple things because it's hard enough to find deals locally. It's even harder to find good deals out of state because you have to compete with the guys that can get face-to-face with everyone. So you really need to put in more effort and get more specific. And I mean, I made the mistake. I went out there and I was looking for, hey, you know, I'd love a single family that maybe I could Airbnb. You know, So maybe look for that as well as I could do a small multi myself or I could do something larger with some partners. And it was not a lot of specificity to it. It got really helpful when I really drilled down because it forced me to spend my time more wisely and to actually build relationships with the right people rather than spreading myself too thin and planting a bunch of shallow seed. It's better to plant a few deep ones because that's actually what's going to give you the results. When you're analyzing a property, what are your metrics that you're looking at? Are you looking at cash on cash? Are you looking at IRR? Are you looking at monthly cash flow per door? What are the main metrics that you're looking at? And then what is your minimum required return for each of the major metrics that you're looking at? Sure. So this is kind of a two-parter for me. I mean, I think that there's the metrics that I'm looking for personally as an investor, and then there's the metrics that I'm looking for deals where I'm raising money from other investors. Because then it really becomes what their criteria is. And then we have to back into the deals we do. You know, so for me personally, cash flow is great. I'm looking for cash flow and the markets that I'm looking in, I know I'm going to find cash flow. So that almost works itself out. For me, what's really critical is I want to be in below market after my purchase price and renovation per doors. So for example, one of the deals that we recently did down there, we're paying 65 a door. We're going to put about 5K a door into it. So we're going to be in for just over 70 with closing costs per unit. And the market value for that property is 80 to 85K a door. So we're all in for 10 to 15% below market value in that scenario, a little bit more than that actually. So for me, I care a lot about the velocity of money. I don't want to just write a check and then 
if I'm making money by through cash flow, that's the only return I'm really getting on that cash. I can't turn it over fast enough for me to grow the portfolio the way I want to. So for me, I need to get in at 15% plus, you know, 20% plus below market value so that I can refinance a good chunk of my capital out and then go put it into another deal. So that's the biggest thing for me, getting in below market, being able to refinance 75 to 100% of that initial investment out within 12 to 18 months so that I can keep that money flowing. And outside of that, once it's stabilized and we have long-term debt on it, I'd like to see kind of an 8 to 10% cash on cash return just to service the debt safely, You know, see a good debt service coverage of 1.3, 1.4. But for me, it's really all about getting in at a below equity figure or below market figure so that I have some built-in equity when I buy. And that's really the big thing. As for raising money, we're looking at projects that are 75 to 100 plus units at the property level, we want to see 10% plus cash on cash return and 20% plus IRR because then we can work backwards into offering our investors an 8-9% cash on cash and a 15 to 17.5% IRR. And then we're structuring the deals so that we have some equity and we're kind of making that difference. And we can, I guess, get into how we structure those. But that's really what we're looking at that level is. And that's where we're more concerned about cash flow because that's what our investors are more concerned with. So long as we can deliver them the returns they're looking for, if the deal supports and we can make some money for putting it together, that's kind of a win-win there. So is that roughly where your investors are required? That's one of the questions that I was going to ask you is, what is your minimum return that your investors ask for? It sounds like it's 8 to 10% on cash on cash and that 15% range on IRR. Yeah. And I think that answer, you can take it a number of ways, right? Because we can get into the whole concept of risk-adjusted returns, right? And I think that if you're doing a tiny little deal in Podunk, Mississippi, you're going to want to earn more, right? Than if you're doing a deal in, let's maybe more core Tampa, or you're on the side of Lakeland, that's within 30 minutes of Tampa, and you're getting closer to a real core market. And the whole other piece of it too is like, what's the business plan? Is this a heavy value add where you're gutting all the units and it's going to be vacant for eight months and there's a lot of risk associated with it? Or is it you're buying it and you're kind of organically raising rents. And it's actually a simple kind of rinse and repeat business plan, something that the ownership team has done before, right? So I think the context matters, right? For the deals that we do, which are Lakeland's a great market. I think that it's not Tampa, right? Tampa is a safer market. It's just core city. But for a market like Lakeland, which is more of a secondary to a core city like Tampa, I think that it's considered a relatively safe market in terms of the a lot of the drivers that are there. So in a market like that with a simple deal where we're going in and raising some rents or doing some light rehab in each unit and the actual business plan implementation risk isn't really that high, I think 9 to 10% cash on cash returns over the life of the deal and 15 to 17.5% IRR is, is a fair number. And I think that's kind of what investors are expecting nowadays. And I think right now, investors are kind of recalibrating their expectations too, because the returns are slowly shrinking in multifamily. There's more and more folks going out there and getting into the business and prices are going up, returns are getting pushed down. So investors right now are starting to have to recalibrate their expectations a little bit. I think three, four years ago, the standard kind of projected returns were 10% cash on cash, 18, 19, 20% IRR. And now we're a few percentage points lower than that in terms of what the kind of average market returns are. But I'm being long-winded here, but I think it really matters in terms of what the deal is, what's the risk associated with this deal market-wise and business plan-wise. That Mississippi deal, you're probably going to want to earn 22 25% projected on the front end in terms of an IRR. But a deal in Lakeland or Tampa, one of these really solid markets, maybe you get away with 15 to 17 and a half, and that's okay for your investors. For those who may not know, what is an IRR and what factors go into calculating that? So it's basically the sum of all of your returns along basically through the life of the hold period, right? So 
cash on cash returns, your distributions, right? It's just one stream of income that you're seeing on your investment. And that's what you're actually seeing on an annual basis. IRR takes into account debt pay down. It takes into account the value that we're adding to the property. So basically the equity that we're building into the property. And then it also takes into account cash flow as well, which is the one that everybody's really familiar with. But it's really those big three, cash flow, paying down the debt as we hold the property, and also adding value to the property. So it's basically the sum of all those cash flows when we sell. I mean, it's the total return on your money, basically extrapolated over the life of the hold. So cash on cash, a lot of people like that because it's like, this is what I'm going to earn annually. It's a very simple number and concept to understand. However, the real money in real estate is made by creating value in properties. You know, When we buy the property and we're all in for 2 million bucks and it's worth 2.5, What's the value of that equity growth to each investor, right? And that's what IRR captures. In your IRR models, do you build in any annual appreciation in the property value? And if so, what do you use for that? Do you use two, three, four percent? So when we're doing multifamily, it's not necessarily property value appreciation, but the appreciation is comes through rent growth, you know, rent growth versus expense growth because uh, commercial properties are valued based on the net operating income and a cap rate. So you're getting the value by growth in your income. So by way of doing that in our model is... And this is actually really interesting because if you do 2.5% rent growth over 5 years versus 3.5%, that has major implications on your value in 5 years, major implications. You can take a bad deal and make it look good by just changing that one number by 1%. So for us, we try and stay really conservative. And right now, we have rents growing at the same exact level of expenses growing. So in all of our underwriting, we're doing 2% rent growth, 2% expense growth. So there's no disproportionate growth in our NOI over time. And that's basically the equivalent of assuming no appreciation growth if you were to do it on like a single family, right? That's the conceptual equivalent to that. So for us, we're trying to keep that really conservative. We still think the markets has legs. I mean, it's just multifamily housing. There's every single metric supports long-term growth for the asset class, right? We may be honestly over-conservative, especially if we're doing deals in really, really solid markets like a lot of these markets in Florida that I mentioned. However, we obviously want to just under-promise, over-deliver, as everyone does, especially when you're working with investors and we want to protect our own money. So we aren't projecting really any growth above and beyond what we're creating by buying it below market. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you want to get it into long-term debt. What does long-term debt look like for a property like this? What are the terms, interest rates, things like that? Yeah. So there's various lenders for... You know, let's just use a, the 28 unit we just did, for example. You know, we bought that deal using a bridge loan. So we had a lender loaning on the purchase price and lending 80% of our proposed renovation budget. So they're financing a lot of the renovations as we go. However, obviously, that comes with a higher interest rate, shorter term. And our goal is fix the property up, get the rents to market, boost that NOI so we can get a good appraisal. And when we go out there to refi and hopefully deliver some of our investors' cash back. And then from there, obviously, long-term debt can look like a few different things, right? You can go to a local bank, local credit union and get a 25-year amortized commercial loan and the low 4% interest rate kind of range. That's common for deals of that size. There's also the big agency lend, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that do numerous multifamily loan programs. For a deal like this, that's a little bit smaller in terms of its overall value. We would use either a Fannie or a Freddie small balance loan. And basically what that is, is a government-backed agency loan with a longer amortization schedule than what you can typically find out there from like a bank, a credit union, or some other lender, a balance sheet lender or something like that. So you get like a 30-year amortization. We get a really solid interest rate, low threes, mid threes. And usually Fannie Freddie, they have a $1 million kind of minimum loan size. So a deal like this will qualify for that. And that's really our end game is to get a really solid long-term, you know, long amortization schedule, low interest rate, 10-year fixed kind of term. 
And then we just ride that out. It's kind of the golden goose for multifamily lending is these big agency lenders. And for us, that's kind of the end game for us on a deal like that. For a deal that was smaller, we'd go to a local bank, local credit union, get something that's 25 years, low fours, high threes interest rate. And and that's kind of what our long-term debt would look like. When I invest long distance, step one is to identify the city or cities that I want to invest in. Step two is to determine if there's enough inventory and if there's the right inventory for me to actually purchase. Step three is to determine if there's high quality real estate and related professionals in the area. And then step four is to find out which areas, neighborhoods, zip codes, et cetera, that I actually want to invest in in that area. We've already talked about the first three steps. So now that you've determined which markets that you want to invest in, it has all the right people, et cetera, it has inventory. How do you personally find out which areas within that city, which zip codes, neighborhoods, et cetera, that you actually want to buy in? So for me, a lot of it is price driven, right? And neighborhood class driven. So I want to be buying C plus, B minus class properties. So if I were to go look at the downtown of a city like Lakeland, right? I mean, it's just going to be B plus A class property, right? And a lot of these suburbs around downtown might be B plus to A class properties, right? And I'm not too interested in those because they're, they don't really fit our model or our criteria, which is we're buying below market, but you still want cash flow. And we want to be in that CB class, that kind of niche. So basically, I almost work backwards from what are the areas that those classes, right? And you can do that by looking up crime maps. And, and this is almost the inverse, right? Where I'm like, I'm looking up the place that has the lowest crime rates within a city are typically going to be the areas that I'm not looking to invest in. However, the areas with the worst crime rates, I still don't want to be there. So I look for a lot of those kind of submarkets and zip codes and neighborhoods that are kind of in the middle, right? Where it's in the meaty part of that curve for that city. So that's kind of how I select them. And then I start to look at basically just sales comps for those specific areas. And then I start to work back into my price per unit threshold. I've set my criteria that I want to be at 65 to 85 a door in these areas that I'm looking in. That just becomes a check for me to see what the sold transactions are like. If they're within that range, then I know that that's a good place for me to be spending my time looking. And then I use a lot of just local opinions, right? I mean, I just talked to my management company, I talked to the agents, talked to other investors down there. And a lot of the questions I ask are where are you finding other investors are buying that are doing CB class deals? What's the zip code? What kind of streets? What are the neighborhoods? And then I start asking for more of their opinion. You know, are there any areas within those pockets that are actually maybe C minus D class? Like they're a little bit rougher in terms of higher crime, or maybe there's a couple of really bad C properties around there that are kind of moneying the area. I just have a lot of conversations with people that have local, very localized knowledge. And that's how you're going to get the best info. You can look at all the stats you want, but it's not until somebody tells you over the phone who manages a few hundred units around where you're looking, their opinion is going to be what's worth the most. So for me, you know, I use like ADT crime maps, Trulia crime maps, or a couple of the resources, and they'll kind of shade over the different areas within the city. And like I said, look, kind of look for what's in the middle there. And then I just use people on the ground to kind of give me their take. And I think the other piece is people forget that you have a financial criteria as well as what you'd like to buy, right? So it's like, what can you afford? What is typically that price range for properties? That are going to naturally fit into your model. For us, it's usually we're trying to buy stuff at 65, 75 a door that's worth 85 to 95 a door. So, where are the properties already selling that are already kind of in that price range, right? So, from there, you do a lot of the checks. Okay, for these reasons, I actually might not want to be in this specific area. It's got truly high crime. Maybe its location is otherwise not very beneficial. Maybe it's too far from downtown or employment centers or something like that. Maybe my management company doesn't manage there, what have you. But I think that's the good high level screening is just to use those kind of concepts and ideas. I've noticed that throughout this conversation, almost every single time that you reference price, 
you haven't mentioned total price once. Every time you have mentioned price per unit. And I think that's important for people listening to notice. And I want to bring that up and ask, I think I know why, but I want you to explain why you talk about it that way. Why do you talk about it on a price per unit basis rather than price per property? Is that so you can compare apples and oranges better or explain to us your thought process there? Yeah, that's a good question. I almost don't even notice that I do it, but I think in general, just saying total price can be misleading in a way. You know, for example, if I was telling agents down there, like, hey, you know, I want to spend one to two million dollars, you know, multifamily, this kind of unit threshold, maybe they're going to start sending me a lot of the 16 units for 1.6 million that are 100K a door. Maybe it's in my price range that I mentioned to them, but like I can very quickly tell that that's not a deal for all the analysis I've done, right? I've done enough underwriting to know exactly where I need to be price-wise, given the average rents, to just even justify getting into an Excel sheet and really tearing it apart even further. So for me, that's what that price range is. I think you know a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the 1% rule, right? And typically people apply that to like single-family homes or small multis, but it applies in large multifamily too, where you don't want to spend more than 100 grand on the single-family house that rents for a thousand bucks a month. Similar concept to multifamily. If I'm buying a 16 unit and 100K a door, but the average rents are only 800 a door, I know that there's no legs on that deal. And it's just not going to hit any of those metrics that I want. So for me, I'm looking at the 65 to 70,000 a door range for those units that rent for that 800 bucks a door, right? Because that's my quick back in the napkin check to see if there are legs in that deal. Because I know that most of the deals in that market are appraising at a price per door that are kind of around the 1% rule. And I know that I have opportunity to maybe grow or increase the value of that property. So that's just how I do my quick underwriting is average rents versus price per door. That's just how I can quickly tell it's worth looking at a deal more than what I've already done. And it's easy to really explain to agents because if you're telling agents a price range, like I said, you know, maybe they're going to be bringing you those smaller deals that fit within your price range that have the high price per unit and are overpriced. Whereas I'm like, I don't have a top end range either, you know, in terms of my price cap. We can do a deal up to three, four million bucks. We'll figure it out. We can raise the money. We'll get it done. So if you find a hundred units at 50 or 60 a door, like I'll figure out how to do that deal in a market where the properties are 80, 90 a door. So I don't want to cap myself on price or give some kind of constricting range. So I think that's a piece of it as well. But for me, it just allows me to quickly look at deals a little bit faster because I just know that boxes I got to hit in order to kind of hit all those metrics I want. Makes it a little bit easier to compare properties too that aren't of the same unit count, right? Like if you have one that's 25 units at 100,000 a unit versus one that's 30 units, it's going to be a little bit more probably total price because it's five more units. But if it's a less price per average unit, then it might be a better deal. So it's tough to just look at total price. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point as well because it, it easily allows you to compare, especially across neighborhoods and classes of property too. So it's like, you know, the C class properties in Lakeland, maybe the true market is 80 to 90 a door. We're trying to get in at 65 to 70 a door. Maybe the B class true market's 90 to 100. Maybe the A class is 100 to 120. So it gives you all these ranges, right? And, and you can compare it across other classes too. You're like, well, I'm not going to play or pay 90 a door for a C class property. That's what B class is selling for. And like, I know that, you know, I've looked at enough deals to understand that. And it makes it easier to have a conversation with your agent. And rather than saying, well, I'm not going to pay 2.75 million for that because I know this is a $2.5 million property. It's harder to conceptually put all that together. It, like Conversationally, it's just more challenging too. You mentioned that you have to start raising real money for these deals around the 50 unit plus mark. But we were just talking about a deal that was to one to say 4 million and you talked about raising money from investors. I want to dive into the smaller deals where you raise money. And I also want to talk about how they're different. So 
first, tell us a little bit how you think about them differently. Like when you say you have to raise money for the bigger deals, how is that different than when you're raising money for the smaller deals? There's two key differences. I mean, just kind of a basic level. I mean, the smaller deals, we got to raise more money for more people, right? It's, it's more challenging, right? There's more moving pieces to doing those larger deals. For the smaller ones, we might be able to do it with like two or three key partners that we know really well. And those deals get put together a lot more easily because we've worked with these people before. We really understand what they want to make on their money. Putting the legal docs together is much more simple. So I think that just when you get to a deal that's let's just call it for round number $4 million. And you got to go out there and raise one and a half for round numbers, You know, 25% down payment and some money for renovation and closing. Now that's when you're getting into 10, 15 people you got to raise that money for. And then there's more documents that are required. You, know, you probably have to do a syndication and you have to file the legal docs in order to put that together. And it's just more of an intensive process. Whereas if we're doing a $2 million deal and we maybe got to raise six, 700 grand for that one, me and two people can do the bulk of that. And maybe we just bring in a third partner who's more, you know, more limited in what they're doing. And they're more of just like a capital guy. So I think those are the two big differences. And then smaller than that, I'm a big, like, I'd love to control my own destiny guy. And, and I don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. So like, if possible, I want to do all my deals myself. And, you know, in Manchester, I, that's what I do up here. Every deal I've done has just been me, my own money, trying to figure it out. And I'd rather control my own destiny when I can and not have to answer to partners or investors. However, just the reality of getting into larger deals is you got to raise the money if you don't have it. So let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort 
with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. How are you actually legally structuring a deal? Let's just say it's 750000 to... 1.5 million. How do you structure a deal like that? You don't have enough money necessarily, say, to fully fund it yourself. So you got to bring in two, three, four, maybe partners that are really not doing much for the deal. They're just bringing in capital. How do you structure that from a legal perspective? So this is where it gets tricky, right? I don't, I don't even know if I have to say this, but I will because I feel like you got to, like, I'm not an attorney, right? I think you got to go talk to yours when you're putting these deals together, especially when you have investors involved, right? It's, you really got to make sure you, everything's figured out <laughs> on the legal side. So we've done a couple of things. We've done syndications. We've done joint ventures. The joint venture structure is what we've done on a lot of these smaller deals where, for example, one of the deals we have in Lakeland, it's me, it's two investors, and it's two partners that are local to Tampa that help us out with everything. In deals like that, we keep everybody a little bit more involved. It's truly not you're writing a check and you're never hearing from us, right? Because that is a definition of a limited partnership. And that's when you start to cross into that SEC syndication requirement zone, right? Where you're writing a check for security and somebody else is running with it. So that's really the fine line we're flirting with here is how do we put together a deal with a couple of partners on these smaller ones and everybody stays involved and we don't have to go through the whole rigmarole of 15 grand on SEC documents, which is oftentimes completely unnecessary for some of these deals. So and that deal, for example, it's three or there's five people on the LLC operating agreement. Three of us brought the bulk of the cash, me and two investors that I have had a relationship with for a long time. And then the two boots on the ground partners, two guys I know over in Tampa, they have some money in it, but their main role is they're helping with asset management as we go. And you know they're meeting the property manager out there every couple of months, helping with that. And me and my two investors, right? We're involved in the decision-making. We're involved in what's going on, but maybe we're not like on site when it needs to happen. So that's something that you can put together with an operating agreement, a couple grand from an attorney. You work everything out. It's nice and simple. And you get to the, let's call it just a 50 unit deal at $4 million and you're raising one and a half and you have, you're raising 50 grand from 15 people or something like that. And you know, you've got a couple of partners yourself who are actively running the deal. And those investors that write that $50,000 check are completely passive. That's when you need to start putting together more documentation to protect everybody involved. And that's when you cross into that syndication line. So there's a whole lot of gray area with this. It's like, you just want to make sure you work with a really good attorney and cover your butt. <laughs> and that's really what it is. And you want to make sure you're taking care of everybody. But those are the big differences. It's two very different deal structures because they're they require different, very different legal documents. And you know, one's much more work than the other, right? And on these small ones, it's nice to keep it simple with just a few people. Yeah, I really wanted to hear more about that first one you mentioned, the little bit smaller one, because I think people listening, not to say that they couldn't do a 50 unit, but I think that's a little bit probably of a stretch for a lot of people listening, including myself. I don't think I'm ready to do a 50 unit yet, but I think it's very reasonable and plausible for somebody listening to go take down a seven hundred and fifty to one point five million dollar property with two to three partners. And I know a lot of people have questions about that. So I think it's good to hear how you structure that and how you work with that for your partners. Sure. Yeah. Let me give you an example, right? I'll start with a simple one and then make it a little bit more complicated. I've done both. Right. Well, I guess we'll start with the simple one. So let's say you're an investor out there who wants to go find a deal. You know you don't have too much cash in your bank, and you're going to have to bring in a partner to do something. 
for round numbers, you go out there, you find a 10 unit deal. That's a million dollars. It's a hundred grand a door. You know, maybe you're doing deals up in Manchester, New Hampshire. That's kind of the pricing up there right now. So you have a partner that can bring the down payment. Maybe you got two partners that can bring the down payment and some money for the renovations. You're going to be compensated by finding the deal and either managing the deal, you know, managing the property manager, whatever. And let's say you need 300 grand to close it, right? You need, let's call it 250 down and you have 50 grand for closing costs, put some money in the bank. So you need 300 grand. You can go out there and you can just do a very simple equity split. Maybe that deal is projected to do 10% cash on cash and 20% IRR and your investors want to make eight and 15. So structure the equity in a way so that they're going to make that, that you keep the equity that basically would be given to you above and beyond what they need to earn that return. So you can just do a simple split. You know, Maybe you give them 80% of the equity for bringing the 300 grand and you keep 20% and that's your compensation for, again, finding the deal, running it, putting together the financing and all that and doing all that fun stuff. And you know, that's not a bad deal, right? And every time you do a distribution, let's say you're distributing $1,000 one month, 800 goes to your investors in proportion to whatever they put in and 200 goes to you. So that's very simple. You can just chop up the equity. And then you know, when you sell, you get 20% of the proceeds, 80% goes to your investors. You know, that's a very simple structure that requires the investor to bring no money to a deal like that. If you wanted to make it more complicated, you know, a little bit more complicated, you can offer what's called a preferred return. So for example, with that same scenario, let's say you offer your investors an 8% preferred return. And then above that, you split everything 50-50. So the first 8% on any cash flow distributions is going to go to your investors. And then if you're distributing money above and beyond the 8% that goes to them before you get paid, you split all that 50-50. And then when you sell, the investors earn 8% on their original investment. And then all the proceeds above that, you split 50-50. In a situation like that, the investors like it because they know they're going to get paid first and they're going to get paid before you. And they can reasonably kind of project their returns, you know, 8% annually. I know I'm going to get that before Robert gets anything who's running the deal. But for you, maybe you keep a little bit more upside. You don't earn that first 8%, but you give yourself a bigger split above and beyond what they make. You can make it as simple or as complicated as you want. And it's almost like you're opening Pandora's box when you get into these structures. But the conceptual theme is if you're going to work with a couple of investors, you really have to understand what they need to make on their money and what they want to make on their money. And then you need to go tailor a solution that provides them that return, but then also makes it worth your while. So if your investors are cool with making 8% cash on cash and 15% overall for the life of the deal, great. Then you know how to look for deals and you know how to spot one that, that's going to give you a, you know, a nice bump above and beyond that. I know a lot of investors that don't even care about the IRR. like They don't care about the bump in their original investment. They only care about cash flow. That's it. You know, so I've had an investor who he just wants to earn 12% on his money and he doesn't really care what happens above and beyond that. So there are deals where I did a deal with him where I promised him 12% preferred return. So he was going to get paid 12% on his money annually before I made anything, but he had no equity in the property. So I owned all the equity. So when we went and sold, he had been earning 12% along the way. I paid him his 12% on his original investment. And then I kept everything above and beyond that. So for me, I wasn't earning a lot of passive income along the way, but I got a really big bump in terms of the split that I had when we actually sold that deal. So again, you know, I guess those are just a few examples, but you get pretty creative with it. Chat with other investors, see what they're doing. You can really get into the nitty gritty with that, but it doesn't really have to be any more complicated than it needs to be, especially if you're working with folks that are just like, you know, I know what I want to make. I don't need to make this complicated. Let's just get deals done. You can offer me this return and you keep whatever you keep. That's fine. So long as I'm making this, you know, that's the best way to look at it as you're putting these together. And all of those things you just mentioned don't necessarily... And again, I'm not an attorney. You're not an attorney. But all of these return 
situations that we just talked about don't change the legal structure. Like you can still have a joint venture with an LLC with the partners in the operating agreement and still offer a preferred return or just the 80-20 split. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you can do all this. Maybe as you get a little bit more complex, you're adding a page or two to an operating agreement, but it's not changing it like severely. You know, I think the operating agreement we had for the small deal that we did, I think it was like 30 pages and it was longer than it needed to be because <laughs> we have a really good attorney and you know, that's just how it ends up going. But probably could have been done in 20, you know, but it's like one of those situations where if we had made the preferred return structure a little bit more complicated, you know, maybe we're adding a couple more paragraphs, but it doesn't change the cost or the real structure of putting it together that much. Yeah, those extra pages are just more providing clarity and detail on the return rather than changing the actual legal structure. Yeah, exactly. What's funny about doing these JV operating agreements when you're putting deals like this together is 90% of the operating agreement is all the stuff that happens when the bad things happen. What happens if a partner dies? What happens if a partner wants out? What happens if somebody wants to sell? What happens if there's you know an issue? Or that's like ninety percent. And ten percent is what everyone really cares about, which is like how's everybody getting paid? How are we structuring this? All that fun stuff. So that ninety percent is going to be pretty constant on every deal you do. You're just changing that ten. How does the financing work? In keeping with the same situation that we we're talking about, how does the financing work? Do these partners that come in, just say you have two or three of them, and yourself? Do they have to be involved with all the bank paperwork and all of that? How does that piece work? So it depends on the bank, right? And this is going to be a hurdle for some people. And and this is oftentimes a hurdle. A lot of banks have... Well, I mean, I think it's a requirement. So I'm not totally sure. I think the Patriot Act makes this a requirement where every time you go and get a loan as an LLC, the bank makes you sign a beneficial ownership form that outlines who's in the LLC and who owns what percentage. Some banks require anyone that has more than 20% or 25% to sign on the loan. Some banks don't require that. You know, if they have the one guy who's signing on the debt that's a slam dunk borrower, maybe they're not going to require other people to do it. So I think that is a conversation that you do need to have with lenders, especially if you don't want to make your investors sign on the loan, which most investors don't want to do that because that's kind of the upside of I mean, there's just a lot of upside of not doing that, right? I mean, there's obviously all the liability and risk that comes with signing on loans. So that's a conversation that you have to have with your lenders. I think local banks, local credit unions, local financial institutions are going to be the ones that are much more flexible with that. I think you're going to have a hard time convincing like, you know, a citizens bank, I guess is a regional bank for you and I, but maybe not every listener knows that, but like a Bank of America or something like that, they're never going to work with you on anything unless you have $20 million in deposits there. <laughs> so oftentimes you have to go to the local banks with the three to 10 branches and you can get a direct, the VP of lending cell phone, you kind of work out all this stuff. Those are going to be the lenders you want to work with on special situations like this. But yeah, you might run into a situation if you're truly bringing not a lot of money and your investors are getting 80% of the equity. And let's say you got two of them and they both own 40% and you own the other 20, to use that example I used earlier, you might find yourself in a situation where some banks want them to sign on the loan, but maybe you talk to enough and you're a good enough borrower that they don't require that. So that's all just a matter of conversation, I think. But yeah, that could be a problem that some people face in a situation like that if their investors just don't want to be involved in that process. It's funny you mentioned having the cell phone number for the VP because I'm working with a small credit union just like that in Texas for some single family deals, actually not big deals, but that's exactly the case. I don't know how many branches they have or anything, but I have the senior vice president's cell phone number. I email him directly all the time. We chat about the different situations going on. But And you'd never have that happen at Bank of America, TD, you know, any of these big banks. You can't get anyone's phone number like at a bigger bank like that. I mean, let alone on the lending side, right? I mean, it's just... Just such a challenge. I mean, the real money in real estate is made 
like as you're growing your portfolio by using by building unbelievable relationships with local banks and local unions, you know, getting creative with them, becoming a trusted lender on their side so that they work for you. <laughs> like you really got to have good relationships with those people, whether you're doing single families. I mean, even if you're doing hundred unit deals, I mean, it's just like local banks, local credit unions can oftentimes be a really good solution lending wise for big deals too. So it's across the board, those are going to be great partners for you. And if you build a good relationship, maybe you get around some of these trip ups that happen as you're trying to put together more creative deals and creative structures. One of the most common questions I get from people when I talk about long distance investing is whether or not I've seen the properties or if I plan to travel to them frequently. You've mentioned before that you like that the markets are pretty easy to get to or that you might even want to visit there. So have you seen all your long distance properties? Do you travel to them frequently? If you haven't, do you plan on doing that? What is kind of your thought process in terms of going to properties you're investing to long distance? Yeah. So I, I don't think that you really need to if there's smaller deals and you're comfortable with it, right? For example, this 28-unit deal we just closed in Lakeland. I, I went down there for the inspection and spent the whole day there. And I mean, it's a big enough deal to where spending a couple hundred bucks on a flight and a couple hundred bucks on a hotel room, like more than worth it just in the grand scheme of that. And it's big enough to where I wanted to make sure that it, everything was copacetic there and that I was comfortable with it. If I was doing like a duplex or like a four-unit or a single family or something like that, and I was getting a home inspection, like I'd just read the, read the report and maybe have the agent or somebody down there walk around and send me a video of it and walk them down the neighborhood or something like that with a video or on FaceTime or something like that. But for the bigger deals where, yeah, you can financially justify going down there and spending a couple of days, I think that's probably the good thing to do if you want to cover your butt. But for small deals, I mean, I don't personally feel like I would need to do that. I think that that is such a limiting belief for other people. I mean, it's such a limiting belief, right? It's like, how do you know it's really there? You know, you know, you're not getting screwed. Well, I mean, if you have an agent you trust and you're working with a home inspector you trust, or you have anybody else in that market that can just go and look at it for you. I mean, you look it up on a tax card, you look it up on Street View, it, it exists. The inspector's like he's gonna know more than you do anyway. So like it doesn't matter if you're there, you're not gonna be catching the same thing he's catching. Just jump on a video, like, I don't know, look at the report and have some phone calls to summarize maybe the things that you were worried about right after he's done. So I, you know, I don't think that should stop anyone from really doing it, right? I mean, I think that the big issue is like you want to make sure you're comfortable with the neighborhood, not the property specifically. You can feel comfortable with the property specifically easy enough, I feel like, but make sure you get good context on the neighborhood. And that comes back to talking to man, you know, property managers, agents, people that are familiar with that market, because that's where you it's harder to do that research from afar. I agree. If it was a big deal, I'd probably go, but my smaller stuff I don't go to and there's even other creative ways like, hey, I my toilet's running. Can my plumber go check it out? And you just have them check it out for you. There you go. Like A lot of people would have to line up in a row for you to get completely scammed these days. And if you think that that's potentially an issue, find somebody that's completely unrelated, third party that nobody that you are working with on that deal has ever talked to or even heard of, a plumber, a handyman, whatever, that's completely unhooked from anything else that's going on and just have them go check out the property and just tell you what's going on. And there's an unbiased opinion for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the reality is like when you have a really, really good management company, like you don't need to go anywhere near the property. Like it's just a reality of the situation. So it's like I was living in Boston and you know, all my properties were an hour north in Manchester. I wouldn't see some of them for a year. They were an hour away. Like I just, you know, I was in Manchester regularly, but like I remember I owned one duplex that was just kind of on the edge of Manchester that I would never naturally drive by when I went into the market or just drove into the city. I wouldn't see it for like nine months, 12 months. And then <laughs> the one time I sold it or I saw it was when I sold it 
And I just walked it with the agent when I was going to list it. And I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. It looks like they did a good job on the rehab. So, I mean, you should obviously understand what's happening within your properties, but it doesn't physically require you to be there. I love that it makes you work on your business rather than in your business. Because if you live local, a lot of people feel like they have to go there. And now they're working in the business rather than on it. Whereas if you're long distance, I mean, I have no choice but to work on the business and figure out solutions on how to not be involved. That's actually a really good point, right? Because that's something that I've found myself in that position so often with my local... I call them local deals. My hour, my, the market's an hour away from me. And I'd still, even though maybe I'm not doing day-to-day management stuff, maybe I'm still getting pulled up there to go meet an appraiser or like kind of the one-off type of things. And I find myself killing three and a half hours in the middle of a day doing that. And I'm like, this just isn't a good use of my time. Doing these out-of-state deals, yeah. I mean, it's just... I can't go there. We have to figure out solutions and we have to build the systems. And as you said, especially as it relates to property management, it's so much easier to justify self-managing your properties if you're local, when in reality, for anyone that has a relatively decent paying job or cares about their time at all, it almost always makes sense to hire a management company because those little tasks are going to wear you down and they're just going to make you not like you know investing in real estate unless you just happen to be wired that way. But yeah, I mean, that was a benefit. I mean, for me, even just being an hour away, that was kind of my limit where I self-managed up until 10, 15 units. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I... I'm driving an hour to meet a guy to go look at carpet. Like That's insane. That's just such a waste of my time. So it's a great point. It's a great byproduct of doing that. What has been different about long distance investing than you expected? Is it easier or harder than you expected so far? It's a really good question. I think maybe what was harder about it than I originally realized, there really isn't that much that's harder. I'm trying to think of something that was harder. I think what was maybe easier, I'll go the other way. What was maybe easier was how easy it is to just get a feel for a property in a neighborhood from afar. Like I literally just had an agent down there. I paid him. I gave him 50 bucks for half an hour of his time. I go, can you just drive this little zip code (laughs) and get me on FaceTime? Kind of show me a couple of properties I'm looking at, do a few block radius. And when it was done, I was like, I just drove that market. Like I completely understand what's going on over there. I thought that was the biggest challenge I thought I was going to have was I knew I was comfortable underwriting. I knew I was comfortable establishing whether a property itself was a good deal. I thought maybe I'd have a hard time understanding whether an overall neighborhood was quality or not and what was really going on around the property. People are willing to help you out. Like I always hate asking people for stuff. I hate asking people for help. That's just a thing with me. So I never really did that. So for me, I was just like, pay people to do it. It makes that conversation easier for me. I, you know, I never want to ask an agent to spend time driving around a market with some guy on FaceTime, even, even though most agents would probably be very willing to do that. So for me, I was always trying to do it from afar without the local help. And I realized you just got to lean on the people that are local. And that's just how you're going to get a good feel for what's going on. So I don't think anything's been more challenging than I thought, to be honest with you. I think everything's been a lot easier. You know, I had the same limiting beliefs everybody else did. But especially if you go to a market, if you go to a market once, you get really comfortable. If you go to a market and then you lean on people that you've met down there for that local advice you should start to feel pretty comfortable and, and understand that what's really the downside risk. Downside risk is you buy a bad deal. Obviously, that sucks. Like You don't want to do that. But just be extremely diligent in your underwriting and really make sure that you're doing good deals to where, oh, shoot, I accidentally bought a property in a neighborhood that's worse than I thought. Well, I got in at a, at a below market price comparatively to the comps that I've been looking at. You know, I can get out of this without losing just you know, all my hair here. So I think for me, I was like, if I'm doing good deals, my downside's really hedged. And that makes that whole process a lot less scary. Is there anything you wish you knew about long distance investing before you started that you know now? Yeah. I mean, I wish I'd started doing it a while ago, right? So I think that the reason that I didn't do it was I just didn't think one that I could compete. I mean, I had a limiting belief where I was like, 
I don't think I can compete with people that are local. How can I find deals? You know, like what, how is that going to work? And in reality, it's whether you're local or far hustling is hustling. Like if you're doing, if you're sending the mailers, if you're really talking to the brokers, if you you're making offers, like you can compete with people that are local. I used to think like, Hey, I just want to do deals up in New Hampshire because I can compete there. I'm, I can get there. I really know the market. I have a great team. So I stayed tunnel visioned on that one market when I really didn't need to do that. And I had the knowledge, the ability, the capital, the connections to do deals out of state, but I just didn't think that I could compete. Right. So I think that, and I don't know if anybody else has that belief, right? I mean, maybe that's just exclusive to me, but I think that if I realized that, yeah, I could actually go out there, do deals in terms of I could compete with the people that are local and win deals and actually gain traction, I think I would have started doing it earlier and started starting that process earlier. I know a lot of people that listen to this show are interested in investing in real estate long distance, but they're on the fence about it. What wisdom or guidance do you give those people? What can you tell them that might help them get off the fence? Whether it be, hey, you shouldn't do it, or and then fall on that side of the fence, or hey, you should probably consider this and fall on that side of the fence. Either way, what can you tell them that will help get them off of the fence about long distance investing? I would take 10, 15 minutes, like I would sit down for a decent amount of time and actually really think about what's freaking you out about it. Like, is it buying a bad deal? Is it buying a deal in a bad neighborhood? Is it getting screwed by a contractor, by a property manager? You know, write down everything, right? And then be honest with yourself. What's the downside risk of all of these individual things happening? And how can I really hedge against it? Right. You know, so for me, the neighborhood thing, I went to the market. Like that was the first thing I did, right? Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe that's just you don't want to go that far. That's fine. You know, go out this week, call five agents, build a relationship with five agents, find one that's willing to get on Google Maps with you and walk you through every street. Ask them a million questions. Find someone who's willing to do that. Pay them if it's if you need to. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is just figure out what the solution is to all of these things that are scaring you about it. And you're probably going to find that there's more than enough <laughs> to get you over that. Talk to three to five management companies, go in bigger pockets, get referrals. Start asking your agent for referrals. Start asking your lender for referrals. You're going to get two, three names that bubble up to the top in, in terms of names that are constantly referred. Get really comfortable with them. Understand that once you have a deal, you can bring it to them. You know, take that fear away. So just start taking away what's actually holding you back. Really, really be honest with yourself about the downside. There's minimal downside if you're going out there, buying a deal that's good deal in a good neighborhood where you're getting an inspection and your property manager's walking in during the inspection and telling you the rent and you're getting five sets of eyes on it. Like really, where's the downside there? Like honestly, I mean, it's no different than doing a deal near you at all. That's just the reality of where I found myself ending up. I was like, I started asking myself with the downside. And then I started looking at the downside of not doing it. And that was significantly more costly than making a mistake and doing it. Like if I did the deal and let's say I did this, the first deal I did on Lakeland, that 16 unit, and I lost a hundred grand on that deal over three, four years. Believe me, that hundred grand was worth it to get over that fear, to get the reps in, to build the relationships, to work with the property management company, to get a better feel for that market because it led to many more deals. And I mean, that's an extreme scenario, right? But if you break even, if you don't make that much money, it doesn't matter. You did it, right? Once you do it once, you're like, oh my God, it's just so simple. Like I just got to go do that again. So I think that not enough people look at the downside risk of not doing something, right? And that's usually a pretty frightening realization when you look at it, when you write it down, when you think about it. So I guess that exercise has been helpful for me and I'd recommend other folks do that. Yeah, I completely 110% agree. That's almost exactly to a T exactly how I explain it. I feel really the same way. As we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to 
tell the audience where they can go to connect with you, learn more about all the different things you got going on. Absolutely. No, I mean, this has been great and appreciate you having me on again. Thank you. I guess the best way for people to get in touch with me is, well, you can check out my Instagram. It's at multifamilywealth. I host a podcast as well that's multifamily focused. And we have some really, really great guests on there. It's the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. And I'll shamelessly plug my little ebook giveaway. So if you go out there and leave a rating and a review for that and a screenshot it sent at the Multifamily Wealth at Gmail, I'll send you a, a longer ebook I put together really outlining how I built this business, how I started from minimal and built a portfolio of properties that's replaced my income. So I'll go ahead and plug that. But you can find me on LinkedIn too, Axel Ragnarsson. Email me at axel, A-X-E-L, at brickleafproperties.com, B-R-I-C-K-L-E-A-F properties. Try and reply and happy to meet anyone that's out there. And if you're looking to passively invest, you know we work with a lot of investors too. So happy to speak with people on that level. I'll put a link to all the different resources and ways you can get in touch with Axel. Axel, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Hopefully I can become the first uh, four-time guest if this goes well. So... <laughs> I think there's a good chance for that. We'll stay in touch. All right, man. See ya. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.